0: Jeff, welcome to the podcast. If you could just start off by telling us a little bit about your company, Zero Gravity. Sure. So it almost goes back 26 years, actually,
1: which is I started Zero Gravity to solve my own problem. Now, back in the day, I grew up in a small town in West Yorkshire called Morley, which is between Leeds and Wakefield. I'm a single parent family. My mum's a speech therapist in the NHS. I made a journey through state schools to Oxford University, where I studied PPE, I saw firsthand just how large the barriers are for students like me to access elite institutions. I didn't have a big network of professionals around me who could give me the inside track on how to succeed. There wasn't really a, an education culture in West Yorkshire where I lived, which you know, created an environment where I could be inspired, or when you have those you know, waxes and wanes in motivation, you've got someone to pick you up. And um, there very few people in my school had been to. Oxford University before. So I saw the barriers firsthand. And and when I got to the end of university, I I sort of noticed that every single facet of society was interested in solving this problem. The government would talk about the leveling up and they wanted to spread opportunity to the rest of the country. Um, The corporates would talk about diversity and wanting to create a diverse workforce of socially mobile people. Universities were being regulated on being representative of their local areas and the talent across the country, and yet no one can actually really find a solution. So I wanted Zero Gravity to be the solution to that problem and you know, create a world where you no know, talent matches opportunity. We've got this catchphrase that the you know, talent is spread evenly, but opportunity is not.
0: And the mission of Zero Gravity ultimately is to try and change that. Yeah, and I want to touch on something you said there at the beginning, which is that you were like really frustrated by the system. And I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently with you know, the graduate guide and. Why I'm doing it, and, and I think everyone talks about in entrepreneurship that passion is really important. But I think almost more important than passion is a genuine like, annoyance that what the solution you're trying to make doesn't exist. I mean, how has that like driven you? That frustration? Yeah, I think there was a frustration. I, I think
1: a lot of entrepreneurship often comes out having a bit of a chip on your shoulder because if you start a company um, to try and disrupt a sector, you've got to defy the odds in order to succeed. And if you look at the data of startup successes, the vast majority of startups fail. But even when you get to sort of series B startups that have raised quite a lot of investment, they're still more likely to fail than succeed. So you have to be a little bit crazy and wacky to create a startup. And and often that sort of craziness that comes from being really motivated about an issue because it's a problem you faced yourself. And often you've got to have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder You've got to be a little bit annoyed about the status quo and maybe a bit annoyed about your competitors. And you've got to have skin in the game and solving that problem because you know, being an entrepreneur is a real emotional roller coaster. And when you do have those dark days when stuff goes wrong as it does, you need that kind of fire burning in your belly in order to sort of get up and uh, keep going. And often that comes from a sense of chippiness. And it did for me. And you know, I'd faced this problem firsthand and I had skin in the game in solving it, and I was just really annoyed at seeing so many talented people fall through the net. You know, when I grew up in West Yorkshire, I was surrounded by so many ambitious, talented people who just were failed by a system that didn't support them into those top universities and careers. And when I got to Oxford, I met lots of people from diverse backgrounds, and though some of them were really intelligent, mm-hmm. but a lot of them fundamentally weren't any more talented than the people I grew up with. They just had far more resources. So I had that chippiness and desire to change that, and that sort of certainly got me through the, the dark times on the emotional rollercoaster of being an early-stage startup founder. Yeah, and
0: right now you deal with people getting people from school into university and also university into a job. I mean... How did actually, what were the origins of zero gravity? Was it, which way around did you do it? Um, because obviously for me right now, graduating, like I'm around a load of people that are really struggling with that transition into, into jobs. And, but you know, I think university, a level to university is actually the biggest step in terms of the education you get access to, the people you're surrounded by, everything. So which one did you prioritize first? Because you obviously can't do it all initially.
1: Sure. I think in terms of the vision of zero gravity, there's a couple of core cool beliefs that quite distinctive to our company. I think one is that I've always believed that social mobility as as an issue is an economic issue as much as a social one. So like social mobility is a very academic phrase and what does that actually mean? It's essentially about unterroring that link between background and opportunity and making sure that if you're a talented person, you can reach your potential uh, in in society. And, And often that's not The case now, if you're somebody from an affluent background, and you're six times more likely to make it to a top university than someone from a low-income background, like the disparities are are huge. And um, and that's not just a a social problem. That's not just about social injustice and not living in an equal society of a level playing field. It's a massive economic issue as well. Because when you think about it, those societies live and die on their ability to utilise talent. And, and currently, we're only utilizing a very small part of the talent in this country. You know, people are living in affluent areas, often in London and the southeast, going to a small subset of schools, a small subset of universities. And there's a whole group of people outside that system who, who currently though probably aren't in jobs or sectors where their talents can best be utilized. And, and that has a massive effect. If we could just get social mobility in the UK to the same level as some of our Western European counterparts, we can increase GDP by £39 billion pounds a year. That's enough to give every household £1,000. So social mobility is an economic issue as much as a social one. And, and that's why I started Zero Gravity, because I thought that all these big institutions and societies, whether they're government, employees, universities, have a financial interest in solving this problem. And if we can create a platform that makes that work, we can also then monetize this as well and create a self-sustaining business model. Now, this can be a business rather than a charity, which has been the traditional model to tackle this social issue and that links into the second core belief which is this idea about the power of compounding like i'm sure you've seen it yourself but but often to achieve a massive goal you can't do that overnight there's no one thing silver bullet you can do to achieve a massive goal it's all about getting 5% better every single day over a long enough period of time and you get that compounding effect or a domino effect, whatever you want to call it, where if you get 5% better every day in a year's time, then you can achieve something that would have seen extraordinary only 12 months ago. And I think that principle applies to getting into top universities. I think it applies to getting into top careers, but the traditional model in the kind of higher education and career sector, in terms of helping students, has been like one-off interventions. They're put on a summer school, or they do a talk in a classroom, or um, create a seminar, series for students to go to Well one-off interventions don't lead to exponential outcomes what leads to exponential outcomes is that getting five percent better every day so i wanted zero gravity to be that kind of anytime anywhere platform that students would have access to on a daily basis they're in their pocket they can connect with a mentor connect with great content and community and it was the, the the app in your pocket that would allow you to get better five percent every day and that is what unlocks those transformational outcomes and for me and make social mobility a reality. So those were the two defining beliefs behind the business and how we differentiated ourselves in a sector which traditionally be dominated by the you know, and medium-sized charities.
0: Yeah, and on the actual practicalities of achieving that improvement in social mobility, like one thing I found fascinating is you know, how you managed to get names like HSBC and big corporate companies actually linked to your company. And I mean. With HSBC and those other conflicts, I was wondering, did they approach you because of the work you were doing, or do you think they were the necessary the necessary next step was to get people like that on board? I think building a startup with a B2B business model, which is what we have at
1: Zero Gravity, is really tough, because the vast majority of institutions are risk-averse at heart, especially big ones. And if you build something that's valuable and you want to protect it and not lose it. And ultimately, people who work in those institutions often don't have an interest in taking big risks to further their careers. So if you're a B2B startup trying to find your first customers, that can be really, really tough, because who wants to take a risk on an unknown, unproven entity with no credibility that might not exist in 18 months' time? So it, it took a bit of time to know find our first you know, clients. And in the first 18 months of Zero Gravity's um, existence. So we didn't really make very much money, in all honesty. It was, it was really difficult to survive as a startup. And in terms of sort of the acquiring the first clients and the getting them on board, our first two flagship businesses we worked with were the HSBC and KPMG. I think what stood out about them is they both had a genuine uh, commitment to solving this problem. And KPMG were the first uh, big UK employer to put an explicit target on um, having working class people in their workforce, HSBC that put diversity at the core of their uh, graduate recruitment strategy, and and often uh, these businesses had tried stuff before. It hadn't quite worked. It'd been expensive, and wanted to sort of try different approaches. I was just lucky that I was connected in with people in those business businesses who had a slightly higher risk tolerance and were willing to take a risk on an innovative startup doing things in a different way. And from that, you then get that compounding effect, which I spoke about before, which is getting those two big names on board, getting results, proving your credibility, then opens up the door to everything else. But it takes time to acquire initial clients. Now, one of my favorite quotes um, is, you're probably too young to uh, remember the Stone Roses, uh, Peter. I'm not sure people still listen to them (laughs) at at university. They are sort of my dad's generation of a, and they sort of did a comeback when I was at university but I'm not sure people listen to them now but there's a famous interview with the lead singer Ian Brown where he says it takes time for people to fall in love with you but it's inevitable if, if you've got a, if you've got the vision and the disruptive way of doing things that you will get there but you have to remember that things that happen overnight and I think often people going into business for the first time who've seen the kind of zero to hero stories and they've watched *The Wolf of wall street or they've watched the social network they expect things to happen overnight actually the reality of most businesses especially b2b ones is is struggling for the first 18 months and then having your breakthrough moment yeah let's talk a bit
0: more about those early stages then because obviously when you're at school you would have been working really hard with this idea of getting to oxford and really improving your the career hopes and trying to aim for the biggest companies probably like that was probably your idea of success at the time and and then you get to the end of your time at Oxford and yeah, you with know, first in Oxford, you can almost go into England and you decided yourself that, you know, you want to go into the start the world straight off the bat. You had this idea, you had something you were passionate about and, you know, all your peers, they would have been going off to earn this wage and, you know, living in London, having this lifestyle. And obviously you're doing something for more than just the money. Um and Now, you know, You've got, I think, there's fourteen um, awards list, listed on your on your LinkedIn. Forbes 30 on the 30, and these are like things that everyone in your cohort would have aspired to get. I mean, how do you reflect on that, that that first year or this first that first step to actually decide? No, listen, I'm going to do my own thing here and really try and give it a go. Yeah, I, I just want to first like correct
1: something you said, which is no, you mentioned that I got a first my degree at Oxford University. All those opportunities were open to me. That's what I actually thought when I was at university, but it's, it's not true in reality, which is that if you go to a highly selective university and you complete your degree, that does create a certain flaw underneath you that you can't fall below. You're always going to have access to some kind of you know, fairly well paying employment. But in terms of really getting those top top graduate jobs that everyone wants, just getting a really good degree isn't going to get you there. And that That isn't necessarily commonsensical because I think a lot of people like me who come from state schools, small towns in the UK thought that was the way the system works. You got your degree and then you think about getting a job. I actually realised quite quickly that even having a first class degree from Oxford doesn't open doors unless you've got the internships and work experience to back it up. And most big graduate employers now are pipelining talent all the way from the first year of university. So if you don't get that spring week in first year, it's almost impossible to get access to a graduate job. And that's a big change in the system, which has happened over the past 10 years. No, our our parents didn't face a system that looked anything like that. But that link now between work experience and getting access to employment is super strong. So having a degree, it can create that that barrier that you don't fall below, but isn't gonna allow you to get the top opportunities. In terms of what that looked like for me, that I jumped on the internship bandwagon quite late. Uh, all my friends in second year have got these internships. And I started to panic I thought, actually, I need to get one of these as well. Didn't know how the system worked. And I just decided, almost on a whim, to apply for some legal internships. And I got a, a, a summer a vacation scheme at Slaughter in May, the Magic Circle law firm, uh, without really knowing anything about the firm in, in all honesty. I had one of those, sounds quite cliche, but embarrassing interviews where I got asked about the Magic Circle, didn't know what that phrase meant, and presumed it was something to do with. With magic, and then that's a cliche in the industry, but that did actually really happen yeah. to me in the interview, which which just shows how unprepared um, I was. And um, I, I got a training contract offer at the end of that, which you know, was life changing in terms of the amount of money being offered. But I ended up turning it down because I, I knew I wanted to be a entrepreneur. And uh, even though my sort of friends and family thought I was a little bit crazy for turning down a stable career, potentially with a very steep earnings trajectory. I had that passion for solving this social issue, so it wasn't actually a difficult decision for me. But that being said, now having to move back home after graduating from university, whilst all my friends went to do their grad jobs in London and sort of moved into their own houses and started doing cool things, that was quite difficult because I became quite socially dislocated from my friends. And it was only when I moved down to London that I was able to solve that problem. Uh, but the first couple of months of starting Zero Gravity, when I had to move back to Yorkshire that were were tough. And it's it's always a difficult decision in the UK to start a business because I don't think the culture in this country is very friendly mm. to entrepreneurship. Everyone celebrates entrepreneurs once they they get some degree of success or credibility. You, know, you mentioned like Forbes 30 and the 30 year awards, now everyone celebrates that decision I took now, but when I made it at the time, people thought I was nuts. People thought what I was doing wasn't going to succeed, and in some degree, you know, who can blame them? The stats they tell a story, right? That most people don't succeed, but I had that passion,
0: I had that chip on the shoulder, and thought, "Why not give it a go?" Yeah, I can massively relate to this, and it it sort of it's brought up a question I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is, you know, with, with these consulting and law and banking jobs, like it's already so competitive. To even, you know, the people that do know about and have got all that background, you get to see people applying to fifth places, from UCL whatever, like top unis, top experience and still not getting those jobs. But then there's also this group of people that don't even know about like I didn't know about it in first and second year. I was too busy having fun, enjoying myself, like getting over COVID, like seeing people again. And then all of a sudden you're, just, you're behind. And you know, it's just amazing me think, where, where are the jobs? Like, where, where where do you even find them? How do you start early and like even exploring different career paths? Like obviously, one thing you do with zero gravity is mentorship. And and I've really benefited from mentorship myself. Almost every single person I've interviewed has been de facto mentor. And I think that really is, you know, the way to succeed. Somebody giving you that opportunity, you know, you can have the connections, you can have the resources that you want, but it ultimately does come down to a company or a person giving you a chance. So what are your opinions on that? Because I, I, as a student who's just been through it and, um, you know, I, I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing a company, but that's kind of only because like you, I didn't, no, you know, I've missed that bandwagon completely. Yeah. It's pretty difficult being a student nowadays because the, um,
1: the kind of university culture that our parents enjoyed of kind of, you know, doing a bit of work or getting pissed quite a lot has yeah. kind of gone away. You know, you have to, nowadays it's difficult to afford university and you have got to, the default is probably to do 20 hours a week at a part-time job to make ends meet. And then you've got to get all these you know, work experiences as well. And, and, and as you said, I think the one thing people often don't understand is that work experience is far more competitive than getting a place at, at university. And when you look at the success rates to get into most universities, the most competitive universities, you know, Oxford, Imperial, their success rates are around you know, 25%. Well, if you look at most graduate jobs, the success rate to get those jobs is between one to five percent. So the the most graduate jobs are far more competitive than even the most competitive universities. And that will makes five applications to universities. Uh, so it's not actually surprising that people should have to make you know, 20, 30 applications in order to secure a graduate job. But I think because people don't understand how that system works and the competitiveness, and it can be massively dispiriting because And when you apply to university, you at least expect to get a couple of offers, right? Whilst applying to graduate jobs, actually the norm is to be rejected from the vast majority of those those roles. And why have we ended up with a system where work experience is so important? Well, I think that's because employers have actually lost faith in the academic system as a good judge of, of merit. I think that's happened for two reasons. I think one... Employers can see how the academic system creates massive disparities. Mm. Uh, Look at the gap in attainment in GCSE and A-level grades between state and private schools. It's huge. Or even between London and Yorkshire and the Northeast, the gap is massive. So if you recruit on academics and education alone, you're going to skew towards certain groups of society and employees have decided they don't want to do that. I mean, the second reason is I, I think they've lost faith in academics being a good judge of talent. And there's been so much grade inflation over the past 10 years, not only at GCSE and A level, but in degrees as well. And a first class degree today isn't what it was 10 years ago. And and that's just true. If you look at the data, people get first class degrees at university. And when you take a step back, it's a pretty crazy system when you think about it. Now, when you're doing your GCSEs, there's kind of like seven or eight grades you can get. The university there's only really three types of grade people get yeah. a, a first a 2-1 and a 2-2 two, two. Yeah. and like you're putting people into three different categories it doesn't allow many employers to sort of differentiate in terms of how hard you work to university like if we're being honest if you look at that 2-1 category people achieve two-ones ones in their degrees there's people there who absolutely work their bollocks off yeah. every single day at university and just missed out due to having a bad day on an exam and there's people just coasted throughout their entire time there yeah. and um, so the The academic system doesn't allow employers to differentiate. So I think that's why they've all defaulted to a system where they have these internship and work experience schemes because they're using those as their new arbiters of of talent. And that creates a really bad experience for students because now students whilst they're at university having to apply to 20, 30 roles, having to spend their summers doing internship and work experience rather than having a good time with their mates. So it is a really, really difficult system for young people and unfortunately, I think the only way to succeed in this system is to kind of work out the cheat codes. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, find a way to the, compile all the information that you're using for applications and reuse it. They're like you know, utilizing you know, ChatGPT, for instance, which can be a great tool if you've got a huge bank of information about yourself, questions you've answered to different employees, it can be much easier to uh, you know, go through different application systems without having to start from scratch every single time. Like those are the things students should be thinking about almost from day one of university, they're building up that data bank of information about themselves, and application questions, and finding a way to reuse that across you know, 30, 40 different employer applications without having to start from
0: scratch every single time. Yeah, as someone who's just been, been through uni yet, what I think was the biggest problem in terms of achieving what you want to achieve, both in your degree and, and getting the work experience you want, is... So that loss of accountability, you know, from from school, having your teachers and your parents being like, do this, do that, and then suddenly you're all on your own. You know, you've got an ID now. You can go, you can go drink, you can do whatever. You don't have to do any work. Nobody's going to tell you off for not doing it. Um, and you know, oh, I want to hear, hear about your own sort of personal relationship with accountability because you know, this might be a presumption, but to get to where you got to in terms of Oxford, and even without, you know. resources like you have you often have zero gravity like you must have had to put a lot you know accountability on yourself so maybe that drive's always been there but for someone who maybe doesn't have that you know who is very talented and and i imagine there are people that you find with zero gravity that have all this talent but like nobody told them account was their parents always working or you know something wrong at home like what is your advice to people on generating that accountability for themselves so they can actually like hit the ground running at university, still have a good time, but then also, you know, succeed and feel fulfilled. Yeah, I think it's very difficult because a lot of these traits
1: like resilience, no grit, being a kind of hyper-responsible, accountable person often stem from your childhood experience. And when I reflect on my own journey, I think the reason I was so driven and had that resilience, like, brutally was probably due to a little bit of childhood trauma which is, you know, I didn't necessarily have a perfect childhood in a way. You know, I did grow up in a, in a single parent family. and you know, then My mum was a huge inspiration in my life and um, was you know, incredible in terms of you know, looking after me and my two siblings. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't an easy an easier existence. And, and that probably did instill a lot of drive in me because I probably did have a little bit of escapism, in honesty, like wanting to escape some of the situations that I found myself in sometimes growing up. So that's where the drive came from. And and I think that dark truth is actually at the core of a lot of social mobility. You know, when I sort of see the data on our zero gravity members and hear some of their stories, often a lot of them have experienced like some degree of childhood trauma in, in some different way. And that has been the thing that's instilled that drive within them. So I think if you are someone who's come from a, a tricky background, like you can repurpose some of the disadvantage you've experienced as a positive force, almost driving force in your own life and own it as part of your identity and the root of your success. And if you're not somebody who's experienced that, and maybe you've grown up with a very stable family, nice area of the country, you know, good, good schooling, you've just got to find that thing that makes you tick at the end of the day, and I know there's a massive debate at the moment about, you know, should you, you know do a job that you're passionate about, or should you do the thing that you're you're good at? But I think I think it's um, it's too simplistic to try and divide those two things. Now, ultimately, you tend to get passionate about the things you're really good at, and vice versa. And I think trying to find that thing that makes you tick is is so important. That like if you are someone who's obsessed with football, hmm. for instance. I don't be a spectator on the sideline and find a way to get involved in that industry. You know, whether it's starting your own side hustle business, you know, running the social media accounts of professional footballers or doing photography. And you know, I met a great entrepreneur uh, a couple of months ago who, who's now started his own business, but the way he got his kind of first taste of entrepreneurship is he just reached out to Anthony Joshua and said, no, I want to photograph you. I'll do it for free. And they, you know, to, went to his training camp, took a load of videos and photographs, which Joshua put on his social media. And from there, became almost part of an, his team, and extension who followed him around the country. They're taking these videos and, and from that experience, you know, learning how to you know, do social media, build someone's personal brand. He took those lessons and and worked into his own business. So finding a way to not just be a spectator in the things you're passionate about, but get involved, I think is a really important principle and naturally the things that you are good at you will get passionate about and vice versa. And, and that is how I think you can you know, create that you know, responsible, accountable culture within yourself if you don't necessarily have resilience and great inherited from your childhood situation. Those values often stem from experiences. And if you're doing something that you're good at, you feel like you're succeeding, your natural cognitive um, response is going to be to try and hold yourself responsible and accountable because you want to succeed. If you're in a situation where you don't care, you're not passionate, it's quite difficult to be accountable at the end of the day. And especially if you don't have people around you pushing that accountability on you. And one of the big problems I think with universities nowadays is there are not cultures of accountability. The university has become in a way a commercial product. Um, If you don't do your essay on time or you hand it in late, often there's no repercussion. To that, And that doesn't naturally you know, create a, a culture of accountability that you can then take with you into the workforce. So often you've got to try and find that culture elsewhere, outside the academic system, because you're not necessarily going to get it from a university
0: environment. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question that you're probably not used to, given the nature of your what your business does. But for me personally, I, I, I was very privileged and I, I went to private school education. And a lot of the people around me you know there were very few that felt like really driven about their career or finding out what they wanted to do because there's a lot of nepotism there's a lot of like you know spoon feeling in terms of your career and I feel like for me and you know my dad was somebody who benefited from social mobility massively like born in Birmingham has built his own architecture company and and having that balance of the education, the opportunity with with him to keep me accountable was was being very helpful for me. But I think there there should be an onus on on people in a more privileged position to you know utilize and make the most of of what they have available. And I feel feel like it is often waste actually, and and they they see university as a, a as a chance to just go drink and and not actually excel at anything and not try and get internships or anything. What would be your advice from your own like personal upbringing and your, your life, and also the people you, wor- you work with, uh, the disadvantaged kids that you would give from them to, to a more privileged person in terms of excelling in their career? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, question.
1: I think one of the things I, I really don't like um, in the UK and the US is I, I think we've sort of fallen into a kind of cultural war around education where if you look at a lot of the um, narrative in the traditional media and sometimes on social media about that gap between state and private schools, um, often it can turn into just stereotypes that are wrong. You know, I, I don't really like when people talk about you know, the 93% who went to state schools versus 7% at private schools because there's a lot of variation within those categories, right? You know, in that state school 93%, you've got people who went to Tiffin Girls School in London, you know, in a very affluent area, the results that are better than most private schools. And then people who went to a state comp in South Shields. So that 93% of people at state schools masks a huge amount of variation. And the same is with private schools as well. You now you've got some really you know, incredible public schools with incredible outcomes. Now you know, you're kind of Westminster, St. Paul's, Eton, but a lot of private schools nowadays um, aren't that good, in all honesty. So there's a huge amount of variation in those categories. And I, I don't think it helps to have this sort of cultural war of no pitting, the like Bullingdon boys versus the underprivileged state school students because it doesn't create a, a culture of collaboration. I don't think it's, it reflects the reality of the situation either due to that massive amount of, of variation. And, um, and I think we need a more sort of sophisticated analysis of things. And I think I sort of, some of my best friends from universities went to, went to private school. I didn't really know anyone growing up who went to a private school, because there aren't too many in West Yorkshire, but some of the people I met at Oxford have gone to be my best friends, and I went to private schools. And like when I, I sort of see the way they operate, I think one of the big differentiators is, I think people who are privately educated often know how to build really good professional networks, because if you've inherited a good network from your parents, and you've been to a school surrounded by people who've got good networks, you sort of build that network instinct of knowing how getting access to people can be really important and kind of driving your personal growth. And I think that's something that people from state schools often don't understand. They think that success has to come exactly through their own like merits or you no know, succeeding in the academic system or doing a great piece of work. They don't necessarily see how building a network can be a way to accelerate all those things. So I think that's something that people at private schools do really well. I think where people at private schools probably struggle is that if, if you do come from a, a, a good background, you have often got the tyranny of expectations. And what, one of the great things about growing up in West Yorkshire is, now, I was able to, in some ways, mold my own future and ambitions because I didn't have my mum pushing any kind of version of the good on me. But um, if you know, you, your parents know are both successful investment bankers and know from a young age, being surrounded by their friends who also work in investment banking, you go and go to a school where most people's parents work in professional services, you kind of inherit not only the resources of your parents, but also their hopes and ambitions as well. And that gets pushed on you as an individual. So I think one thing that that people who you know, do go to private schools or go to you know, good state schools and good areas of the country could think about more is actually what is the thing that makes them tick? They're trying to move beyond the expectations, ambitions of your parents and your environment. And, and work on what is it that actually makes me passionate or what gets me up in the morning. I think that's a more difficult challenge to face sometimes if you are somebody who comes from a, you know, a good background versus someone who's who's faced disadvantage because people from disadvantaged backgrounds can almost start with a blank
0: slate like, when it comes to their ambition and hopes in life. Yeah, 100%. I think that's great advice. Um, yeah, I want to learn a little bit more about how you actually build so gravity because. A lot of people I interview on this podcast, uh, entrepreneurs, that they they have normally have a co-founder or someone they've been doing it with, but as far as I'm aware, you're the only founder and you've been doing this all by yourself. And I wonder what the decision behind that was. Um, and also then the next step comes, you know, building your team, right? But that, if you're going to do it by yourself as a founder, then you need to have a great team around you that hold you to account and, you know, build this good ethos. What was that? Yeah, what was that process of actually building Zero Gravity out like? I, I agree that
1: from speaking to other founders, I think it's often much easier to succeed if you do have a co-founder. It, it's not just about having somebody with a complementary skill set who can do the things that you're weak at, but it's, it's actually mainly about having a partner on the emotional roller coaster of being a founder. Because often the reason why most early stage businesses fail. Is that the founders lose motivation and hope about what they're doing? And it's far easier to lose motivation and hope on a lonely journey when you're the only person, because at that point, the world feels like it's on your shoulders and your shoulders alone. You don't necessarily have somebody you can speak to who's going on that same journey. So, actually, the main reason to have a co founder is not about complementary skill set, it's about having that kind of emotional partner to go on a very difficult journey with. The reason I didn't have a co-founder is no, I wasn't in an environment where entrepreneurship was encouraged. There was no real culture around entrepreneurship when it came to tech startups in West Yorkshire. That was seen as a very strange thing to do. People wouldn't even really understand the phrase startup. And even when I was at Oxford University at the time, there was no culture of entrepreneurship there even. I never wanted to go work in professional services, law investment banking. I mean, the very few people wanted to be entrepreneurs. So I didn't really have a co-founder. Uh, I could access to go on that journey with me. So I had to do it alone. And it was difficult. And there was many times early in my journey where I banged my head against the wall, thinking this is never going to work. And the only thing that got me through that is and I was so passionate about what I was doing. And I was also maybe naive slash delusional. And I, I thought that you know, my vision of the way things should work is fundamentally right. If I keep plucking away at this, this, something will happen eventually. And that's the way it, it turned out. You know, the first six months of bootstrapping were really tough. And often the things that I thought were really gonna propel me to the next level didn't do so. But then I ended up just getting little bits of luck that came out of nowhere. And then when we got our first sort of cohort of people who'd used the platform, who you know, got office to these top universities and they were telling their stories online, you know, journalists you know, coming across those people and being like, wow, this is a great story. I've never heard of this platform before. I want to cover this. And, th- and that sort of provided a springboard for me. I, I can, When I look today and, and see how we've managed to raise so much social impact investment, we've raised £4 million, that would have seemed unfathomable three or four years ago. But the reason we were able to do that, if I sort of trace it back, is that some of those early media articles we got in like the Times and BBC News, they you know, enabled me to build my network of people who eventually went on to become investors in my company. And, and that's just a kind of lesson in how, you know, plugging away at things, eventually I had my lucky break. You know, some of our stories got picked up by traditional media that enabled me to build a network, which then brought the funding in to take the business to the next stage. And I could have very easily have given up before getting that to that point. And you know, there were days where I wanted to give up. But I think it was that resilience that got me through the tricky earlier stages. And that's
0: really difficult to do in a solo
1: founder situation.
0: Yeah. And you, you just mentioned that investment into a company and how beneficial that was for getting to where you want to get to. You yourself invest in more companies as well. Um, and I'm curious, uh, just as someone who's yet to build a portfolio of investing in companies, or to any students for advice in that, how do you choose who you're investing into? Like, what are your drivers behind, like, which one? Because obviously, as a founder who's got investment, you would have taken learnings from that. And then, yeah, and how do you apply that in terms of finding who you want to invest in? Yes, I think the,
1: um, especially in the UK, there's been an explosion in the past five years in investment into early-stage tech startups. and And part of the reason for
0: that is... Everyone's seen what's happened in Silicon Valley over the past two decades.